0: Well, as you read chapter 21 um, at some point this week in preparation um, uh, for worship tonight, or as you heard John read it um, a few moments ago, did any of you feel as though it was anticlimactic? What I mean is, after all, of the ups and downs of the last nine chapters, right? After multiple reminders of the promises, after the battle with Keterleomer and all the other Babylonian kings, after Abraham's despicable choices, And after Sarah's uh, do-it-yourself scheme, was chapter 21 at all disappointing? Don't get me wrong, chapter 21 is a very important chapter. Um, It's, well, there are several lessons that we're going to see tonight, things that we need to know and to understand, it particularly tells us of God's faithfulness. It tells us of his trustworthiness. It tells us of his compassion. All those things can't be overstated at all. But now that we've finally arrived at this point of relief, right? the tension having built, and now the suspense is over, and it's been building for 10 weeks. Is it just me, or is it just a little kind of... I mean, think about it, there are 34 verses in this chapter, and only 7 are dedicated to the actual birth of Isaac. That's only 20%. And the next two pericopes, when, in regards to the banishment of Hagar and, and Ishmael and, and, and the blessing of Abimelech, they get twice as much space. Well, my hope is that when we're through, that this disappointment that you may feel and that I felt will, at the end, be replaced with a deep sense of satisfaction. The story itself is not going to get any more exciting. What Moses described and how he described it is what it is. I can't flower it up any Uh, But once we've taken time to identify the lessons within it, once we've taken the and done the work to connect the three that seem to be somewhat awkwardly connected, if not disconnected, I think we're going to appreciate this anticlimactic nature of the the chapter. Because I think this anticlimactic nature is actually purposeful. Um, I've already shared the outline with you. We're going to look, of course, at the birth of Isaac. We're going to look at the banishment of Hagar and Ishmael and the blessing of Abimelech. But as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Father, would you give us this evening ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word? I'd ask that you would, as always, fill me with your spirit, grant me grace that I might be able to do something for you, for your people this evening. I pray, Father, that you would allow me to speak with clarity and fervency, and I pray that you would allow me to do what you've called me to do, and I do pray these things in the name of and for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you have your Bibles open as we walk through this chapter together. We're going to see first, these, in these first two verses, that it, it tells us in three different ways that the time had come for the promise to be fulfilled. What we've been waiting for has finally arrived in, in terms of the birth of Abram's son. Moses said that the Lord had visited Sarah. That means that he had come upon her supernaturally. He had opened her womb that had been barren, and he had granted life. And Moses said that she conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And all of that took place, notice, three times. Moses said it took place as the Lord had said. It took place as he had promised, and it took place at the time which God had spoken to him. And there's a purpose for that. It's, he's saying that though it seemed as though, right, we've been waiting 25 years. Okay, we were only waiting 10 weeks. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting 25 years for the, for the birth of this son. And so it seemed as though he had delayed. It seemed as though he was tarrying. But the truth of the matter was, Isaac came at the right time. Isaac came at the right time because it was the time that the Lord had determined for Isaac to come. He hadn't tarried, he hadn't delayed. He was now keeping the promise that he had spoken. He was fulfilling his word in his time. He had spoken, and what he had spoken had finally been accomplished. His word was true, it was reliable and it could be depended upon. In the words of Calvin, he never feeds men. God, uh, God never feeds men with empty promises. They are always full. And how did Abraham respond? Well, he responded. He, di- he didn't respond with a shake of his head. You know, it's about time. As I would have probably responded. He responded With immediate obedience, he responded by naming the child Isaac, and he responded immediately by circumcising Isaac on the eighth day as he was instructed. And Gordon Wenham says, God's precise fulfillment of his promises was matched by Abraham's exact promises. Sorry, exact obedience. God's promises were met with obedience. And what about Sarah? What was her response? Well, she responded in praise. She said, no one would have believed, right? No one at all would have believed or told Abraham that I was going to bear him a son because no one would have believed it was possible at our age for that to happen. But now they're all laughing in astonishment because what God had said was actually true. It has actually happened. God had blessed her by opening her womb, granting her a child, and in doing so, her laughter of unbelief that we saw back in chapter 16 had been turned to laughter of rejoicing here in chapter 21. It was a laughter that would not only be hers, but it would be shared with those around her, those who knew the story, those who heard the story. They would all be rejoicing with her because this was only something God could do. The new laughter would be overshadow, or would overshadow her old laughter. And in the words of Alan Ross, the child's name would be a reminder of God's faithfulness rather than of the parent's unbelief. Or we could put it this way, God's faithfulness would now outshine the parent's faithlessness. Every time they would call His name, they would remember the faithfulness of God, and and of course this... This great anticipation of this birth and the joyous response that it elicited foreshadowed the joyous response of those who greatly anticipated the arrival of another son 2,000 years later. He too was the seed of Abraham. Paul says he was a greater seed. And he, like Isaac, had a supernatural birth His mother wasn't barren, his mother was a virgin, and she conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this son was and is the one to whom Isaac and his birth pointed. This son was and is the one, in the words of Elizabeth, or in the words of Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, who would visit and redeem his people in fulfillment of the Holy Covenant, the oath that God had sworn to Abraham. This son was and is the long-awaited, much-anticipated one through whom all the nations of the earth would, in fact, be blessed. This son was and is the one in whom we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have the right to be called sons of God, and heirs of promise, because we're spiritual offspring of Abraham. And we know that one of course, to be that one and only Son, to be the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is His second advent that we now anticipate and will one day rejoice over. So, brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is God cannot not fulfill His promises. He's unable to do so. It's impossible for him to fail to keep the promises that he's made. And I know we struggle with that. I struggle with that. You struggle with that because we have had a lot of people make promises to us that have not been kept. We've had promise makers fail and we've had those promises not be kept. But the truth of the matter is, God is the ultimate promise maker. He's the ultimate promise keeper, and he will not fail. Therefore, we not only need to remember his promises, but we need to rehearse his promises day after day after day. And As we rehearse his promises, then we begin to rest in his promises, and we then rely upon him to do what he has said he would do. Because he is the only one that will keep his word, he can do no other. Well, unfortunately, not, everyone, uh, not everyone's laughter is, is positive. In verse 9, we read that the celebration of Isaac's weaning, which was a big deal due to the mortality rate or the infant mortality rate at the time. At this weaning, Sarah, Moses said, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now this was a moment for Abraham and Sarah to, to finally take a step back and maybe relax and take a breath. Right, because now that the boy is weaned it, for them, the chances were much better that the heir of the promise was going to survive. But that meant... That this this moment was also the moment at which Ishmael's life would change forever. Because Isaac was now the center of attention. Abraham loved Ishmael, and we're gonna see that in a minute. But at this point, the relationship was going to change, and it was never going to be the same. Isaac, though younger, was now going to be the number one son. Ishmael was gonna take a back seat. Isaac was the promised one. He was the rightful heir. He was the one who had, had experienced a supernatural birth, and everybody was rejoicing. Ishmael, on the other hand, he was the son of a slave woman. He was the son of, and the byproduct of the do-it-yourself plan B. And his birth had done nothing but, but bring about consternation and Dysfunction. It could have been more night and day. He knew, Ishmael knew his, his future was now different because Isaac had been born. And as a result, we know based on how the word is used elsewhere, and we also know based upon how Paul interprets what's going on, he says uh, what's going on is persecution. Okay. We know that Sarah didn't catch these two boys in this some sort of innocent game and, and playing with one another and laughing with one another. She caught Ishmael, who, by the way, is probably around 17, laughing at and deriding, jealously laughing at, deriding, mocking, and making fun of a three-year-old. And as you can imagine, Sarah was not going to put up with it. She wasn't going to have anything to do with it. She, w- she wasn't going to put up with Ishmael treating Isaac in this way, or mistreating Isaac in this way, and in, chapter, in, in verse 10, she was clear about what she wanted Abraham to do. She was so angry. Notice in the text, she's so angry. She doesn't use Hagar's name. She doesn't use Ishmael's name, and she actually uh, takes, takes Hagar, and, and instead of a hand servant, she becomes a slave. And she, she looks at Abraham and says, this is over. I want it severed. Cast him out. But as I mentioned, Abraham loved Ishmael. It was his son. So the wheels begin to turn. As, as we can imagine, and rightfully so, his wheels begin to turn. What, what can I do? I need to come up with an alternative plan. I need to do something differently. Differently. Because I need to say no. Because we wouldn't be in this mess if I had said no to her earlier plan. But God comes to Abraham in a dream. More than likely a dream. God comes to him and tells him he needs to listen to Sarah. And he reminds him of the promises that he's already made, both to Isaac and to Ishmael. And what their lives are going to be like. And God at this point is putting in motion this hard and fast line and he's separating the brothers and he's separating Abraham from Ishmael. It is a severing. This was the end of the relationship for Abraham and Ishmael. This was was a removal of any potential uh, to dissuade or disrupt or distract, or detract from the promise and its fulfillment. He was going to make sure that that was not going to happen. This was a definable action. It was a definable action through which God displays His electing grace on one hand, and then sets up His display of His common grace on the other. We're going to see that in just a minute. And so Abraham immediately did as the Lord commanded, he did what Sarah asks, though he's, he's less physically harsh than she had been verbally. And He gives them a little bread and a little water, but he does, in fact, banish them. He banishes them from the family, he banishes them from the land, and the two, mother and son, begin to wander in the wilderness. And at some point, the bread and the water run out. To the point that they're growing very weak and they're struggling to continue and she doesn't want to watch her son as he struggles. So she takes her son who's probably leaning on her, struggling to walk. She takes him over to a bush, puts him under the bush and moves to a distance where she can't hear him or see him and he can't see her or see him. So they are now truly isolated and alone alone abandoned and left to die. But in verse 17, we learn that though Abraham had abandoned them, God had not. We see this lesson once again. What Hagar had learned in the wilderness back in chapter 16, she now uh, is reminded of in the wilderness here in chapter 21. While Ishmael's name isn't mentioned at all, it's not mentioned at all in the chapter. This meaning of his name is made evident. God hears. And God heard him and more than likely he also heard her in the midst of, of the affliction that they, had been, that they had been experiencing due to Abraham and Sarah. Though they felt isolated and alone, they weren't isolated and alone. He had been with them. Though they had, he, uh, they had been treated harshly by Abraham and Sarah, God was going to treat them graciously and compassionately. Again, the common grace to Abraham and Sarah, they were cast off, cast offs. But to God, they were worthy of His concern. And He provides for them. In verse 17, He speaks to her. The compassion to speak to her and tells her not to fear. In verse 18, He tells her the same promise that he had told Abraham about Ishmael's offspring and and becoming a nation. In verse 19, he opens her eyes and he reveals a well that she had not seen before. And In verses 20 and 21, we're told that Ishmael grows up, he learns to hunt, Uh, he may have even learned how to become a warrior. Which would make sense, since last back back chapter or so ago, we learned he was going to oppose everybody. So he's probably gonna probably uh, learn to become a warrior. And his mom, being a single mom, takes on the responsibility of husband and father, and goes and finds him a wife, and goes and finds her in Egypt, the country that she had been taken from so many years earlier. Brothers and sisters, back in June, when we looked at chapter 16, we walked through that wilderness experience and we uh, took time to reflect on the Lord Jesus not breaking a bruised reed or quenching a smoldering wick. And we were reminded and, and instructed and reminded that we shouldn't either, that we should care for those around us. So what I want to do is I want to actually have us tonight consider something a little different. I said earlier that when God banished Hagar and Ishmael, he was removing the potential to dissuade, disrupt, distort, or distract or detract Abraham from the promise and its fulfillment. But because Abraham loved Ishmael, His heart broke in the process. And we ask, why is that significant? Well, listen to these words of Ligon Duncan. He says, because God loves us, he draws our hearts away from anything that might separate us from him or compromise our trust in the promises of his covenant of grace. And brothers and sisters, sometimes that breaks our heart. So let me ask you a few questions. Have you experienced unanticipated changes in a relationship or in certain life circumstances? Is there something that you've been praying for that hasn't been answered as you hoped it would be? Is there something you've been hoping for Or a dream you've you've been holding on to, hoping that it would come to fruition? Is there something you believe the Lord hasn't provided? And have you come to a place where you believe He's holding out on you? Or He's standing in the way of something that you believe would be good or that you need? Could it be that he's removed a hindrance to your spiritual growth? Could it be that he's removed someone or something so that your faith may be strengthened rather than weakened? Could it be that he's removed a temptation to compromise or to give up on his promises? Could it be that He's not withholding anything from you, but building you up in faith so that you rely upon Him? Could it be that He's preparing for you something better than you could ever ask for or imagine? Well, that brings us to the last point of the blessing of Abimelech. Either at the celebration, or immediately following the celebration, Moses says that Abimelech and his uh, military commander approach, and Abimelech says something very, very significant to Abraham. He says, God is with you and all that you do. It's a statement that should cause us to pause for a minute and ask ourselves, Is God's grace so evident in my life that others notice? Just something to file away and think about. Anyway, Abimelech, it was obvious to Abimelech that that Abraham was in a very special relationship with God. He He knew that God's hand was upon him and he wanted to make sure that he was in right standing with Abraham, so that he could be in in God's good graces. He wanted to enter into a covenant with Abraham to ensure that he wouldn't. Well, he wanted to first. He wanted to enter into this covenant with Abraham to make sure that Abraham didn't do what he had done before. Right? He didn't want him to deal falsely with him or his descendants. Abimelech is not dumb, and, and Abraham has proven himself not so trustworthy. So he's wanting to enter the covenant for that reason, but he also wanted to enter into the covenant because, again, it, it's apparent to Abimelech that, that God's hand is upon Abraham, and so he knows that apparently if, if, if I bless Abraham, God will bless me. and If I curse Abraham, God will curse me, and so he wanted to be on the right side of things. So he's setting himself up for or in a position of blessing. And Abraham says, sure, that sounds great. We can enter into that covenant. But we just got one thing to work out. Some of your men have taken a well that I've dug, and we need that well. We need that well to survive. We've been drinking its water, and, so, and, and I need that back. And the Biblia says, absolutely, sorry, didn't know, which kind of speaks of his leadership. But anyway, he doesn't know. We're going to take him at his word. He says, you, ha- you have a deal. So Abraham brings the oxen and he brings the sheep and he gives them to Abimelech and, and they cut a covenant. The word there's, they cut a covenant. So more than likely, they take those animals, cut them in half, set them apart, and, and do what we saw in chapter 15. And they walk through. But Abraham also gives seven ewe lambs. And Abimelech, what are these for? And he says, I want this, I want to give these to you so that we can be sure that this well remains mine and that this well is, everyone knows that I dug it, it's my well, it's the the well of my descendants, and it's always going to be that way. And Abimelech says, great, they swear an oath to that effect, and so it's done. And Abimelech and the commander go home. And then Moses says this, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in 'er Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now there are a few things that we need to uh, notice here. First is he plants a tree. It's a tree that would grow. It was a tree that would provide a marker. But this thing about a a tree, we've just recently planted a small tree in our yard, and um, we planted a tree in our yard five years ago, and there's a significant difference between the two trees. And so we know that Abraham plants this tree for himself, but he's really planting the tree not only for himself, but for his descendants to come. The tree is going to be there for him to see and for them to see. It's going to be a marker. It's going to um, establish this. It's, it's a memorial for this covenant that he and Abimelech have just put together or, or just uh, entered into. It's also, though, going to be a sign of God's provision and of the future occupation of the land that he had promised. Right? He's, he's setting that up because this is going to be not only for me, it's going to be for my descendants to see And to know what's happened here. Secondly, he calls on the name of the Lord. He plants a tree, he calls on the name of the Lord, and he acknowledges Him as an everlasting God. And so he's responding in worship, as Abraham has done on a frequent basis. He's responding in worship, and as he responds in worship, he's acknowledging that God has been And had been and has been and would be always faithful. He was his God in the past. He was his God in the present. He would be his God in the future. He would be his God in life and death. He would be his God no matter where he went. Which is important for the third thing that we notice. Moses said, Abraham sojourned in the land many days. The Lord Remember, the Lord had used Abimelech to chastise him last, last week. But at this point, he uses him differently. The Lord uses Abimelech through the covenant and the return of the well to express not only his confidence in the existence of future generations that would come and occupy the land, but to also give them the ability to dwell in the land legally and permanently, and with the resources they needed. In other words, the Lord used Abimelech to confirm the people and land promises. But notice, the land was his, even though it it was his, he did not set up permanent residence. We heard it in our New Testament reading from Hebrews chapter 11. We've mentioned before, he had assurance and the conviction that Canaan was not his final destination. He knew it was a part of the promise, but it wasn't all of the promise. He knew Canaan pointed to something greater. And so he didn't set up permanent residence because he was waiting for a better city. He was waiting for a better country. He knew he was a citizen of a greater kingdom. And so he, cons- he continued to sojourn. He continued to be an alien. He continued to be an exile in the midst of the country. Well, now let's go back to the point I made in the introduction. I believe this, this chapter is anticlimactic purposefully. And here's why. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting on a son for a very, very, very long time. To the point that, and, and you can understand this, maybe some of you have waited on something for 25 years. Some of you maybe longer. And maybe you've put your hope in that thing. So it, it would have been likely for Abraham and Sarah to put all of their hope in this birth. They believed that when he was born everything would be okay. All of their troubles would go away, their problems would be solved. But what do we discover? When he's born, everything wasn't all right. The dysfunction continues. The interpersonal relationships, the people are still at odds. After he was born, they didn't settle down into a life of ease and comfort. They remained exiles and sojourners. So Abraham plants a tree. He plants the tree as a reminder that there's more yet to come. Not just there's more yet to come, the best is yet to come. He's anticipating the best The everlasting God was not finished. Isaac was not the end. There's a chance maybe this was the point. We don't know when. Maybe this was the point that Abraham saw the day of the Lord Jesus and was glad. And he was committed to remaining faithful to the promise. Now, earlier I asked you if there was something that you had been hoping for or a dream you had been holding on to that wasn't coming to fruition. Listen to these words from a pastor I heard earlier this week. What is sometimes worse than having your dreams unfulfilled is having your dreams come true and then realizing that you're still the same person and you still have the same issues inside you and you still deal with the same sort of unhappiness. And then he says this, at least if your dreams are unfulfilled, you can just keep holding out hope. Wisdom there. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I often, I think we all often fall into the trap of if only, living if-only lives. We live counting on and, and hoping for more. If I can just get this, if I can just get that, then I'll be happy. If this experience will take place, if that experience will take place, all will be well. I just need this one thing. And what happens? That one thing happens. Even when those things happen and our dreams and our wants are fulfilled, we're still left wanting more. There becomes another thing that we need or want. We're never fully satisfied. Our problems don't go away. Life isn't perfect. But here's a a truth of this anticlimactic chapter, just as Abraham wasn't meant to experience complete satisfaction with the birth of Isaac and the land of Canaan, you and I are not meant to find complete satisfaction in this world. And the sooner we recognize that and believe it, the better off we'll be. We like Abraham, we're made for something more. We long for something more because we've been made for something more. We long for something more because there is more to come. The best is yet to come. And we also we also have a tree not that we planted. But we have a tree to look at, and that tree is the cross of the Lord Jesus, the one to whom Isaac points. The cross assures us that God is an everlasting God whose promises are true. We look to the cross and we can find that we are firmly established within the security of the covenant of grace. We look to the cross and, and we rest assured that just as the Lord Jesus was born and lived and died and rose from the grave, that he will return again. Yes, we're a part of his kingdom, but as we learned in our study of Luke, right, the kingdom is already, but it is also not yet. And so we do await his second advent. Things are now not fully consummated, and things will never be perfect as long as we're sojourners. But one day, that will all change. We have the hope that it will all change. And my encouragement in the midst of this world, in the midst of our soul journey, in the midst of the, of the lack of complete satisfaction in everything that you're going through, my encouragement simply tonight is to look to Christ and His cross. Look to Christ and His cross. It's there that we find hope now and in the future. Because all of the promises of God our yes and amen in him. Every single one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love? Would you enable us to lay it up in our hearts? And practice it in our lives. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray these things. Amen.